The Ear to Asia podcast is made available on the Jakarta Post platform under agreement between the Jakarta Post and the University of Melbourne. Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. For me, I think China is a great balancer and a catalyst for Sri Lanka's relationship with India. If you look at the relationship in the past, India's approach was more like hegemony. But right now, during this economic crisis in Sri Lanka, we see how India has changed its approach in dealing with Sri Lanka. And if Sri Lanka plays its cards right, it would not preclude cooperation with China, but it would mean throwing greater sensitivity to India's strategic concerns. India, of course, is the fifth largest economy in the world. It's right next door to Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka has a lot to gain by working closely with India. In fact, much more than it can gain economically by cooperating with China. In this episode, how can Sri Lanka continue to hedge between India and China? Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialist at the University of Melbourne. Recently, Sri Lanka found itself caught right in the middle of a diplomatic row between China and India, with the planned visit of a Chinese naval vessel, the Yuan Wang-5, to the Chinese-built and operated port of Hambantota in Sri Lanka. India opposed the visit because it considers the vessel a spy ship, while China maintains it's just a research vessel. Colombo tried to defuse the situation by first delaying the visit and then putting limits on what the ship could do while in Sri Lankan waters. The 115 saga is just the most recent example of how Sri Lanka, itself in the midst of a catastrophic economic crisis, must walk the line between Asia's two largest powers. For their part, China and India have very different approaches. China, known for its abundant infrastructure loans to developing economies, including Sri Lanka, has been reluctant to reduce the debt burden when the chips are down. While India has been a good neighbour to Sri Lanka in its time of need, providing copious aid in cash and in kind. But how much of a pawn is Sri Lanka in the greater game between India and China for supremacy in the Indian Ocean? How can Sri Lanka maintain a sense of balance in these vital bilateral relationships? And will there come a time when Colombo will have to choose a side? Joining us to examine the state of India-China power dynamics and what this means for Sri Lanka are Dr Pradeep Tunisia of the University of Melbourne's School of Social and Political Sciences and Dr Chulani Atanayaka of the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. Welcome to Ear to Asia, Chulani, and welcome back, Pradeep. Thank you, Ali. Pleasure to be here, Ali. Thank you. Let's start with a big picture look at where Sri Lanka sits, both literally and in a geopolitical sense, uh, vis-a-vis India and China, because Pradeep, a a cursory look at the map would indicate potentially much closer relations with India than China. Is the map a true picture? The map does indicate a true picture in the sense that Sri Lanka sits at the epicentre of the trade routes between the Persian Gulf and the Straits of Malacca, the two being very important sort of points uh, as far as shipping, international shipping is concerned. Geographically, of course, Sri Lanka is much closer to India than it is to China. It's just 20 kilometers off the coast of India. 
and therefore historically, culturally, there are much closer ties and much greater Indian influence in Sri Lanka than you would think of Chinese influence. But that doesn't mean that Sri Lanka has had no historical contacts with China. Historically, you know, ties between Sri Lanka and China also go back to, you know, according to some estimates, you know, two millennia. But particularly since Sri Lanka is a Buddhist country, and, you know, during parts of China's history, Buddhism has had great influence in China. And during those periods, for example, during the Tang Dynasty in China, we saw Chinese Buddhist monks come to India and then from India, you know, go to Sri Lanka. And Fashian, one of the more famous monks, after his stay in India, he went on a merchant ship to Sri Lanka and spent two years studying in Sri Lanka. Also, the famous Ming Dynasty Chinese admiral Chung He visited Sri Lanka a number of times. And therefore, you know, historically, Sri Lanka has had contact with both China and India. But its geography means that its interactions with India have been much denser than with China. Since, you know, independence, Sri Lanka has maintained ties with India obviously, but also since 1957, when diplomatic relations were established with the People's Republic of China, Sri Lanka has maintained both economic and security ties with China. And we'll get into the details of the relationships uh, a little later in this conversation, but Pradeep, is it fair to say that the relationship with India and Sri Lanka has been, well, it's fluctuated more. It's been more troubled in the past two decades since Sri Lanka's civil war. It has for a number of reasons, partly because when the civil war ended, and even during the civil war, Sri Lanka relied on China for the supply of military hardware. India was unwilling to supply military hardware to Sri Lanka to be used in the civil war largely because those weapons would have been used against the Sri Lankan Tamils. And India, of course, is the home of the Tamil community. And, you know, the state of Tamil Nadu in India, where relations with Sri Lanka watched very closely. And therefore, the Indian government had its own domestic concerns about the conflict in Sri Lanka and what kind of aid Indian government would provide to Sri Lanka even though the killing of Rajiv Gandhi by the Tamil Tigers in 1991, of course, uh, had created a sentiment in India which was not particularly favorable to the Tamil Tigers or their cause in India as a whole. But in Tamil Nadu, there still remained a fair amount of sympathy and support for the Tamil Tigers and their cause for a Tamil Elam. So India had its own reservations, but China stepped in and China provided Sri Lanka with the weapons. And once the civil war ended, China moved in much more intensely with economic assistance as well as military assistance to Sri Lanka. And over that period, Chinese Navy has also developed greater blue water capabilities. Because remember, in the 1960s and 70s, China simply did not have the capabilities to exert influence, you know, as far away as Sri Lanka. But its capabilities in that area are now much greater. And therefore, we are seeing China exert its military and economic influence in Sri Lanka and the other Indian Ocean islands. 
and I'll look at that in more detail in a minute too. But Chilani, can I bring you in here? To what extent do you see uh, China having the opportunity to make inroads in Sri Lanka while India's relationship has fluctuated? We really have seen the relationship with China develop into a much deeper one in the past couple of decades, haven't we? Yes, Ali. I would say that the relationship has gone through these fluctuations even before the past two decades. India's equation with Sri Lanka's conflict is quite complicated, I would say, because the period in which these rebel groups emerged in Sri Lanka, there were several Tamil rebel groups in the north and east, as well as uh, Sinhalese majority rebel group in the south, which is known as JVP. So Sri Lankan government had a lot in its plate during 1970s and 1980s. So there are some records which state that the Indian rebel groups, including the LTTE, the Tamil Tigers, uh, they had this initial training in 80s in some parts of Tamil Nadu. And then subsequently, there were instances where Indian government directly involved, for instance, uh, what is known as Operation Pumalai, when the Sri Lankan military cornered the Tamil rebel groups in Jaffna, Indian Air Force airdropped supplies. I mean, I understand where Dr. Deep is coming from and that Indian government had its own concerns because of the uh, Tamil Nadu perception on Sri Lankan conflict. So with all that, Sri Lankan government on its part had this concern over Indian involvement in Sri Lanka. And then subsequently after that in 1987 with Rajiv Gandhi and uh, Sri Lankan president at the time, J.R. Jayavardhana's 1987 peace accord, and then the Indian peacekeeping force coming to Sri Lanka. So there were a lot of these involvements on India's part. This is exactly because of Sri Lanka's close proximity to India and the fact that Sri Lanka's security has greater concern for Indian security as well. However, these factors made significant impact on the public perception on India as well. That has fluctuated and changed over time, but in general, partly the historical experience of being invaded by the South Indian kings, which has been taught in Sri Lankan history, and then subsequent Indian involvement in uh, conflict. These things have affected, I think, Sri Lanka's domestic policy in terms of its relationship with India, as well as the public perception. And has it allowed China to make more progress in its relationship with Sri Lanka? To a certain extent, at the beginning, I would say yes, because China's relationship with Sri Lanka has been significantly peaceful throughout the history. Again, this is related to the geography. As a result of that, China is perceived as a friendly country to Sri Lanka. Dr. Pradeep explained the historical relations Sri Lanka had with China with regard to Buddhist culture and then Silk Road, etc. So this was the narrative about China. And then adding to that in the more contemporary era, exactly what Dr. Pradeep explained in China's support for the Sri Lankan government in ending terrorism in the country and then subsequent support for infrastructure development. In my personal opinion, 
China's involvement in Sri Lanka coincide with several factors in the geopolitical and international context. First and foremost, China enters the WTO within the same period of time and it expanded its outward investment policies to developing countries like Sri Lanka. Then secondly, with the end of the war in Sri Lanka, its relationship with the West and its partners gets complicated and there was somewhat distance from its traditional partners like Japan, which resulted in not being able to acquire the required infrastructure funding for the country. And at the same time, the West go through a financial crisis which means that they did not have the required funding at that point of time to provide for countries like Sri Lanka. So these things sort of like complemented one another. Then, of course, China's growing interest in the Indian Ocean of becoming a two-ocean power, etc. So with all that, I think these things coincided together, giving China the opportunity to have more inroads into Sri Lanka. And, and Tulane, in fact, Sri Lanka was a very early beneficiary, wasn't it, if that's the right word, of the Belt and Road largesse of China with funding for the port that we're, we were talking about in the introduction to this conversation, to the Hambantota port. Uh, that funding coming from China and now China being in control of the port because Colombo couldn't pay the money back. How fraught was that process? Well, uh, first and foremost, Hambantota Port, this was a project that has been in uh, discussion in Sri Lankan policy circles for a longer period of time, I think since late 1990s. But of course, there has been multiple feasibility studies, but it has been difficult to find investors, particularly because of the conflict going on at the time. And then, of course, I think investors on their part would have been concerned of completely building a new port as well. Adding to this, during the period when the project was proposed, there was strong political will on part of Sri Lankan government because Hambantota is the electorate of president at the time, Mahindra Rajapaksha. And also Hambantota was one of the least developed districts in Sri Lanka, so which actually required this kind of uh, funding. Even before it actually began operation, it garnered a lot of negative attention because of the geopolitical issues that has been happening. But when I uh, talked to the experts in the port industry in Sri Lanka, their perspective was somewhat different. For them, this was a very viable and required project for Sri Lanka's port industry. There was argument as to why Colombo was not used for this purpose, but then the argument had always been Colombo do not have the space to do the kind of business that uh, Hambantota port was proposed to do. With regard to port being given as uh, equity swap for the debt, to my knowledge, uh, that is not the reality. According to the experts in Sri Lanka's port industry, the Hambantota port was always supposed to go for a public-private partnership because in their opinion, that makes sense as well because uh, Sri Lanka do not have manufacturing industry so that we do not have the capacity to operate a port on our own. So we needed a shipping company that has a greater network. So CM Port has that network. 
Pradeep, is that your understanding that the fact that the port is now in China's control was always part of a plan for a sort of partnership? Or is it the narrative that is so often talked about, certainly outside the country, that it was about Sri Lanka not being able to afford to pay for it? I think the Sri Lankan government has acknowledged that they had to enter into this debt to equity swap with China, with the Chinese company, because uh, Sri Lanka simply could not afford to pay the debt. And clearly, the port was built by a Chinese company with a Chinese loan. And when Sri Lanka was unable to repay that loan, they entered into an agreement with this Chinese company, the Chinese shipping company, I think it's called China Merchants, which is a very old Chinese company. And so now the port is being managed by this Chinese company on a 1990 lease. Now, it's not unusual for China, in fact, to have this arrangement with other countries where it is building ports. In Pakistan, for example, China built the Gwadar port. It was initially managed by a Singaporean company, and now it's managed by a Chinese company. So management is different from ownership. So what we have is this 99-year lease, which effectively is ownership of the port by this Chinese company. This is a direct sort of function of Sri Lanka's financial inability to repay the loan. Because if Sri Lanka had been able to repay the loan, it would have been able to negotiate or to have competitive bids with not only Chinese companies, with perhaps, you know, Dubai port or Singaporean companies to find a more suitable partner for, for managing this port. Pradeep, there is a lot of talk, as I said, about China funding projects uh, for countries that can't afford them, that then end up in a sort of debt crisis and China ends up holding the infrastructure. Do you think that that is a fair criticism, looking at the port, which is often held up as the example of this? Well, personally, I don't think that the Chinese government built this port to trap Sri Lanka into some sort of debt trap. I think it's played out that way, but it wasn't the, the original purpose of the port because, as Trulani said, it was the Sri Lankan government because the Hamantota area is the constituency of the Rajapaksha family, and this is an underdeveloped area, so they wanted to bring some development to this area. You know, it's typical pork barreling. You know, you give money to bring development to your constituency. And that's what they were trying to do. But since the Chinese side was lending money to Sri Lanka rather than investing in this port, the expectation always was that this is a port, which is an asset, which will be owned by the Sri Lankan government, and they will repay the money to the Chinese government. But nobody sort of looked at the actual development potential of that area. This area had hardly any industry, and putting a billion-dollar port in Hamantota did not make any economic sense. And that's why there was no commercial lending for the port construction by other international banking or multilateral institutions. The China was willing to build this port because we've seen China do that in many other parts of the world. China's lending criteria are very different and have been very different from other lending institutions. 
and the other reasons that might be around that we'll get to in a minute. But Pradeep, can I ask you to give us a sort of potted version of what happened in August this year, when, as we said in the introduction, the Hambantota port was at the centre of a row between India and China over a visit by this Chinese naval vessel, the Yuan Wang 5. When this debt-to-equity agreement was signed by the National Unity Government of Sri Lanka, before the Rajapaksha brothers came back to power, there was an assurance given to India that the Hamantota port, its defense use will be managed by the Sri Lankan government, and therefore foreign warships or foreign navy would not be able to use it without the permission of the Sri Lankan government. And until now, this has not been an issue. But in August this year, we had a Chinese spy ship, which China says that it is, it's a research ship. It is certainly a ship which is loaded with all kinds of listening devices and other equipment, including satellite tracking. And China says the Yuan Wang 5 is the latest in a series of such ships that China operates. And they are only designed to conduct scientific research and track you know, Chinese satellites. But in reality, the equipment that it carries is, is quite powerful, and nobody has had free access to the technology that is on board the ship to determine what else, you know, apart from tracking satellites, what else can the ship do? So there was an agreement with the Rajapaksha government that this ship would dock in Hamantota. But in the meantime, of course, President Rajapaksha, Gotabaya Rajapaksha, fled the country, and we had a new interim president in Ranil Vikramasinghe. And Indian government protested to the Sri Lankan president, and Sri Lankan government then said that it will research the decision, it will investigate, and it told the Chinese government that they should defer the visit by the ship to Hamantota port. And this was seen in India as a victory for India, as a win for India. The Sri Lankan government has denied permission. But five days later, the Sri Lankan government then granted the permission again to the ship to dock in Hamantota. In the meantime, you can imagine in those five days, Chinese government would have mounted tremendous pressure on the Sri Lankan government to reverse that decision and to stick to the original decision by President Gotabaya Rajapaksha to allow the ship to dock in, in Sri Lanka. And in fact, this controversy became even bigger, this competition between China and India, as far as the ship's visit to Sri Lanka was concerned, became even bigger when the Chinese ambassador to Sri Lanka, Chi Hong, published an opinion piece in a Sri Lankan you know, website, I think it's called the Sri Lanka Guardian, on the 26th of August this year. And in that article, he linked uh, the visit by UN Wang 5 to Sri Lanka, to Hamantota, to Sri Lanka's sovereignty and territorial integrity being threatened and China coming to the defense of Sri Lanka. In other words, he was linking the Nancy Pelosi visit to Taiwan, which he said was about China defending its sovereignty. And Yuan Wang 5's docking in Hamantota was also about defending the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Sri Lanka. That, of course, led to the Indian High Commission in, in Sri Lanka, in Colombo, firing off a series of tweets saying that he's trying to put a 
spin on this you know, visit by the Chinese you know, ship and accusing India of violating the territorial sovereignty, the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Sri Lanka. So this has just become another symptom, I think, of the growing competition between India and China in the Indian Ocean and particularly in Sri Lanka. Indeed, Chilani, to what extent do you see what happened in August around the port as sort of the perfect example of the pressure on Sri Lanka to walk this line between these two powerful players? Indeed, Ali, I think it provides a format for the world to see what the power competition between China and India would look like for the smaller countries. I think from Sri Lanka's point of view, the Chinese ship docking in a Sri Lankan port did not have any conflict with uh, Sri Lanka's territorial integrity or the sovereign rights. Again, China is not the only country who has this kind of technology or this kind of ship. India, United States, Russia, several other countries has similar kind of technology and they do similar kind of operations. From the Sri Lankan side, what should have happened was first and foremost not to decline or deny the fact that this ship was visiting Sri Lanka because I think that created another set of issues in Indian media. Usually, whenever something to do with China in a neighboring country, Indian media like makes a lot of noise. That's very normal. It's not just about this incident. There has been several incidents in the past as well. So what Sri Lanka should have done from the beginning is to be very transparent about this because usually these kind of visits are planned way in advance and also to show this was to follow the rule-based order in, in its maritime limits and also to discuss with both sides and be very open about uh, this and handle it in a much more diplomatic way. That would have uh, prevented this kind of issue. But again, as you said, this is one of the many examples to come of the kind of challenge Sri Lanka would face in navigating the competition between two giants, two giants whose relationship is becoming complicated day by day. Indeed. And as Pradeep said earlier, Chulani, of course, China's building other ports in the region as well. If we look beyond just this particular example of the, the Hambantoto port, how important is Sri Lanka to China's regional ambitions? Is it about access for shipping? Is it about projecting power? How important is it? Sri Lanka is important for China and even in other Indian Ocean powers because of its strategic location. Sri Lanka is situated in the middle of an important shipping lane so that all these countries will have easy access to the shipping lane and also to protect their interest in the region. For China, uh, also, this is the reality. I think China has made it clear that its arrival into Indian Ocean back in 2014 is not a one-off instance in order to fight piracy, but they are here to stay. So for them to 
maintain their presence in this region partners like sri lanka are important because this is a ocean space which is far away from their own territory i don't think china is the only country who look at sri lanka as a strategic partner for all the other countries because of the importance of the indian ocean in the current geopolitical context sri lanka is a important strategic partner You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. And just a reminder to listeners about Asia Institute's online publication on Asia and its societies, politics and cultures. It's called the Melbourne Asia Review. It's free to read and it's open access at melbourneasiareview.edu.au. You'll find articles by some of our regular Ear to Asia guests and by many others. Plus, you can catch recent episodes of Ear to Asia at the Melbourne Asia Review website, which again, you can find at melbourneasiareview.edu.au. I'm Ali Moore and I'm joined by South Asia researchers Dr Chulani Atanayaka and Dr Pradeep Tanisha and we're talking about Sri Lanka's big bilateral relationships with China and India. So Pradeep those are the ports that China has been building dubbed the so-called string of pearls how does India view them and are we essentially looking at these two countries competing actively competing for strategic dominance of the Indian Ocean? or has india won that one well as far as you see the indian ocean is concerned india's geographic location places india in a strategic advantage position in the indian ocean there's absolutely no doubt about it the southern peninsula just juts out into the indian ocean and india has a clear geographic advantage uh, in the indian ocean china of course is a relative newcomer to the indian ocean as china's naval capabilities have grown china has been exerting influence in other parts of the world and this uh, strategy of building port facilities deep water ports all around the indian ocean they may not be built as you know naval facilities or as naval bases but certainly since most of these ports are deep water ports they have the capability to receive you know warships and we have seen in sri lanka for example chinese warships have visited sri lankan waters in 2014 we had a chinese nuclear submarine dock in in sri lanka in colombo in fact and that created a, a degree of concern in india given the geographical proximity of india to sri lanka so far the chinese government or the chinese military have not built naval bases as such in the indian ocean countries apart from the naval base in in east africa that the chinese have said that it is for anti piracy operations but in other places whether it's in pakistan or in sri lanka or in bangladesh or in other parts of the indian ocean it is more about places rather than bases places where chinese navy ships can dock when needed there is of course a possibility that the gwadar port in pakistan in baluchistan could eventually become a chinese naval base but at the moment as things stand this is more about places rather than bases and what about assets uh, naval assets pradeep how do the two countries navies compare you talk about the clear geographic advantage that india has when you stack up their assets what picture do we get well again as the resident 
sort of power India has a strategic advantage in the Indian Ocean, and particularly working closely with other you know, Indian Ocean countries such as Australia or other countries who have a strategic interest in the region, for example, the Quad partners, Japan and the United States and Australia, India is making sure that it continues to maintain a strategic edge in the Indian Ocean region. And I think it's something which is going to be very difficult for China to compete. China certainly will continue to maintain a presence in the Indian Ocean. We can't wish China away. China will certainly be a presence in the Indian Ocean. But I think India, particularly working closely with its strategic partners, would have an advantage in the Indian Ocean. And this is something which I think island nations are aware of, which I think political leadership, the military leadership in countries like Sri Lanka is also aware of, that India is something you can't wish away. India is the largest country in South Asia, and it has the fifth largest economy in the world. And there are advantages of working closely with India for countries like Sri Lanka and the Maldives. But China does have a far bigger navy, doesn't it? China does have a bigger navy. China now has effectively three aircraft carrier. India has just uh, inducted its second aircraft carrier. China has many more submarines than India. China has been developing its naval capabilities faster than any other nation since the Second World War. In fact, it's said that China adds more warships to its navy every four years than the entire French Navy. So you can imagine, you know, China's naval capabilities have been growing very rapidly. But without effective physical presence in the Indian Ocean, I think it would be very difficult for China to get an edge over India, particularly if India continues to develop its maritime relations with its core partners, United States, Japan and Australia. Can I ask you, Chilani, about if we move to look at the domestic situation in Sri Lanka, which is obviously key and affects all relationships at the moment, the current economic and political crisis, how did Sri Lanka get into the situation it's in today and just how bad is it? Uh, yes, Ali, I think Sri Lanka is going through its worst economic crisis since independence. There's a shortage in essentials foreign reserves have declined. People are suffering because of high inflation, lack of fuel, lack of essential medicine. It's an unprecedented crisis for the country. Why Sri Lanka is in this situation today? I would say it's because of years of bad policies. Sri Lanka, since independence, have not had a very strong economic policies to support export-driven economy. Even though we opened up economy in 1970s, I think we have ended up becoming an import-driven economy. On the other hand, there has been several misplaced policies in terms of tax regime in the country, export-import policies. Uh, because of all this, Sri Lanka, after it became a middle-income country, when the traditional uh, low interest or concessional loans were not available, Sri Lanka has sought out to capital markets. So today, a majority of debt, closer to 50%, 
are because of the borrowings from the capital markets at high interest rates. And these borrowings are being used for projects that give either low return or that would give return after a long period of time. So as a result of this, this uh, economic crisis was in the brewing for a longer period of time. However, during the COVID-19, Sri Lanka's traditional forex earnings, such as uh, remittance from the migrant workers, tourism industry uh, declined significantly. Even before that, tourism industry declined because of the Easter Sunday attack in 2019. And then there were other misplaced policies by the government of Gotabe Rajapaksha. For instance, the overnight ban on chemical fertilizer, import of chemical fertilizer, which affected the food security of the country during a very critical period of COVID pandemic. And then Adding to that was other external factors such as the Ukraine crisis, which significantly affected, is affecting the entire world. So this was a crisis in the making, but the misplaced policies of the previous government accelerated it. Indeed. Uh, Pradeep, can I ask you about the extent to which you think the current crisis can be laid at the feet, in particular of the Rajapaksa brothers who have so dominated the Sri Lankan political scene, uh, they were forced to resign, as we've said, after the mass demonstrations over the economic mess, first the Prime Minister, uh, Mahinda, and then subsequently the President Gotabaya. Still, though, the Rajapaksa party has a parliamentary majority. They do, although the next election may change that. But I would agree with Chulani. I mean, Chulani obviously follows Sri Lanka's domestic politics much more closely than I do. But clearly, the mismanagement of the Sri Lankan economy has to be seen as the main cause of the crisis that Sri Lanka faces today. After the civil war ended in 2009, Sri Lankan government went on a borrowing binge to add to the debt that they had accumulated during the war. They borrowed massively. And then both the governments, the Rajapaksha brothers, when they were in power until 2015, and then again, the new government that came to power in 2015, they also continued to borrow money quite freely from international markets as well as you know, bilateral lenders such as China. And mismanagement, of course, has been compounded by the crisis created by COVID because with covid one of the important sources of foreign exchange revenue for Sri Lanka tourism almost sort of ground to a halt. And COVID also affected Sri Lanka's other key export, tea. So clearly, I think COVID and now the, the war in Ukraine and the effect that it is having on Sri Lanka is adding to Sri Lanka's you know, economic woes. But without the mismanagement, particularly by the Rajapaksha, family of the Sri Lankan economy, I think Sri Lanka would have been in a much better position to deal with both COVID and other crises. So for example, they decided that they were going to go for organic agriculture. Sri Lanka would become you know, a country that will grow organic crops and it will export those food products to the rest of the world. And they restricted imports of fertilizer, chemical fertilizer, from other parts of the world, from India, China, and other parts of the world. Uh, it was partly because of the foreign exchange shortage, but partly because of this misguided economic policy. And that, of course, resulted in 
the Sri Lankan agricultural output being very negatively affected by that. And when you had you know, a financial crisis where Sri Lanka did not have enough foreign exchange to buy food and petroleum products, it just compounded the problem. So Sri Lanka simply did not have enough financial cushion to protect itself from an external shock. And that was largely a function of the mismanagement of the Sri Lankan economy by the Rajapaksha brothers. So how has India in particular responded to the economic crisis? I said in the introduction, they've been a good neighbour. Is that a fair description? Well, India certainly, I think this year in 2022, you know, since this crisis erupted, India has offered to Sri Lanka close to $4 billion. The last figure I saw was about $4 billion US dollars in terms of relief, in terms of loans to buy necessary goods such as fuel, medicine, and food, mainly from India. And uh, this has, of course, alleviated some of the suffering of the Sri Lankan people. But I don't think India alone can provide enough assistance to Sri Lanka to deal with the crisis, because the biggest problem, of course, is the repayment of the debt, which is you know falling due now. And that is something that Sri Lanka has to negotiate with the International Monetary Fund and with other lenders. But India certainly has, I think, been a friendly neighbor. And largely the motivation behind that may have been to ward off similar assistance coming from China. China, in the end, of course, hasn't been as forthcoming as India has. We must remember that small island states like Sri Lanka are not simply passive takers of this competition. They have an active role. And they do play an active role in playing one against the other. In international relations, it is called hedging. Hedging is, you know, when a small state positions itself between two major powers and then quite cleverly tries to maximize advantages for itself. Now, cleverly is the active verb here because uh, the Sri Lankan government has to have enough diplomatic finesse to try and take advantage of this competition. If Sri Lanka has a bipartisan foreign policy and a defense policy, which is very well communicated to the international community, as well as to major players like China and India, then it would be in a much better position to leverage you know, that competition, to benefit from the competition between China and India. But Sri Lanka's domestic politics have been dysfunctional. And therefore, Sri Lanka really is not in a position to play that role effectively, because if it plays the role effectively, the growing competition between China and India can be to Sri Lanka's advantage. Chulani, Sri Lanka does need to be a clever hedger, doesn't it? Do you think Pradeep is right in terms of its current capacities? Definitely, Ali. I agree with Dr. Pradeep. I agree with the fact that India's foreign policy during the crisis has been flawless this time. It has managed to change the perception of the Sri Lankan public on India to a greater extent as a friend who comes at times of great need. And I also agree with the fact that for smaller countries like Sri Lanka, this is an opportunity. To a certain extent, Sri Lanka has used the conflict to its advantage in terms of realizing its foreign economic interest in the past. But I also do agree that because of the 
complicated situation of its domestic politics at the moment, Sri Lanka requires this diplomatic finesse to manage its relationship between the two countries. For that, actually, I think Sri Lanka can look at, for instance, Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia has been mastering this strategy of hedging for a longer period of time between the United States and China. They have gained many opportunities, advantage of the competition. So it is something that Sri Lanka can learn in uh, navigating this relationship. Within the domestic sphere, there is a lot of discourse on a need for so-called change in Sri Lanka in terms of foreign policy, in terms of domestic politics, in terms of economic policy, etc. This moment can be that moment for Sri Lanka to build this bipartisan defense and foreign policy to communicate with the international community so that we have the ability to gain maximum advantage of this competition. And Chilani, when you talk about maximum advantage, as has been mentioned by Pradeep, China has not been that generous, has it, in response to the economic crisis? They've certainly been very reluctant to write off any of Sri Lanka's loans. China's response has been lukewarm since the last few months of 2021 to this crisis. I think there was some diplomatic tension between Sri Lanka and China, partly because of there was an issue with regard to a fertilizer consignment from a Chinese company. During the Kotabe Rajapaksha government, there were several projects that were first negotiated with China did not come through because of some concerns from India, including a solar power project in the north. So these things have created some tension between Sri Lanka and China diplomatically. Uh, Plus, I think China is going through its own problem because of these similar kind of economic crisis in several countries. Many of its debtors are going through similar economic crisis and they're looking for similar debt restructuring. So on one hand, I think China does not want to provide precedence for the other countries to follow a similar path. On the other hand, it does not want to give a wrong message to its uh, small partners saying that it is not going to come forward to assist. So if we look at the case of Zambia, China, I think, took time in order to understand the context and situation and how to deal with this without jeopardizing its global image and diplomatic relationship. And today it is in partner with France to co-negotiate debt restructuring with uh, Zambia. So similarly, I think what we should understand is China is new to the system and IMF and other Western countries have been in this system for a longer period of time. So they have experience on countries like uh, Sri Lanka, which has weak institutions, and they knew that giving them unconditional loans would not help. But I think China, because of its reluctance to perhaps accept the Western policies, did not want to listen to that. So it went on giving these loans for many debtors and today it is in this situation. So I think China on its part is also struggling to navigate the current situation. 
but i hope because this has great impact on its global image as well as its economy because these are loans they need a return so they will take their time and see how best they can handle this situation Pradeep, from both China and also India's point of view, and given we just talked about the extent to which the Rajapaksa family have dominated politics domestically in Sri Lanka, do India and China want to see political change? What are their, I suppose, political imperatives when it comes to Sri Lanka? I think from the Chinese point of view, clearly it doesn't matter whether Sri Lanka is a democracy or not, whether it's a good democracy or a poor democracy. From China's point of view, in fact, an authoritarian leadership, which is more sort of favorably disposed towards China would be a better outcome. But we know the people of Sri Lanka have demonstrated, you know, very clearly over the last couple of months that they want their governments to be more responsive and much more representative. So for Sri Lanka, this is a challenge. India, of course, has always said that India supports democratization in Sri Lanka. India supports a more cohesive government, which is at peace with itself and with all its major sort of communities. And from that point of view, India has been a strong champion of a proper reconciliation between the Sinhala majority and other minorities, including the Tamils and Muslims. So India has been pushing Sri Lanka to reach a proper reconciliation with its minorities. And, you know, this recent crisis, the demonstrations that we saw in Colombo recently, maybe there is a ray of hope that the protesters, the Sri Lankan people, in fact, have demonstrated that they were willing to come together to achieve uh, the outcome that they wanted. They wanted an overthrow of the Rajapaksha brothers from government. And maybe there is hope that Sri Lanka is going to move towards a much more politically reconciled, politically cohesive uh, sort of democracy. And a democracy in Sri Lanka, I think in the end, would vindicate India's position and would develop much closer ties with India. Because Sri Lanka's official position has been that it follows India first policy. And I think if Sri Lanka were to follow India first policy, it would not preclude cooperation with China, but it would mean showing greater sensitivity to India's strategic concerns. India, of course, is, as I said, the fifth largest economy in the world. It's right next door to Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka has a lot to gain by working closely with India. In fact, much more then it can gain economically by cooperating with China. And Pradeep, that does bring me to my last question, actually. Are you essentially saying that if Sri Lanka needs an India-first policy, bottom line is they have to choose, that they do have to choose between China and India? No, I don't think it is as black and white. It's not choosing between India and China. It is simply being much more pragmatic about their own national interests. Remember that Sri Lanka's geographic location is very important in terms of international shipping. But you look at the Colombo port, more than 80% of the business of Colombo port is about transshipments to India. So Sri Lanka may be geographically in a, in a good location, but the largest economy to Sri Lanka is India, you know, closest to Sri Lanka is India. And therefore, Sri Lanka benefits from a rising Indian economy. And and if it plays its cards right, it can maintain good relations with China. 
But when it comes to India's strategic concerns, if it is more responsive to those concerns, I think it will gain much more from that relationship with India. But it will still need some clever hedging. It would. Chilani, what do you think? Well, I agree with Dr. Pradeep Ali. I don't think it's black and white and I don't think that Sri Lanka has to choose because at the end of the day in international relations, we know that there are no permanent friends or permanent enemies. There's only permanent interests. So Sri Lanka has to take a pragmatic approach in its foreign policy, especially because it's a small country. And let's not forget that China has been a catalyst in the way that India's uh, relationship with Sri Lanka in this past two decades. If you look at the relationship in the past, India's approach was more like hegemony. It has uh, directly involved in Sri Lanka's domestic politics, domestic affairs unnecessarily at several times. But then because of that very reason, there has been resistance from the Sri Lankan government as well as especially from the general public towards India. But right now we see that especially during this economic crisis in Sri Lanka, we see how India has changed its approach in dealing with Sri Lanka. It provides the assistance where necessary. It does not get involved in domestic politics, which has been accepted wholeheartedly by the Sri Lankan public. So this is a significant change. Dr. Pradeep referred to Colombo Port. Since the Colombo Port was there itself, I think, transshipment has been mainly for India. But India did not take a keen interest in investing in Sri Lankan port industry, even though majority of the transshipment is happening for India. But after the CM Port's investment in the Colombo Terminal, CICT, we saw India's growing interest in getting involved, investing in Sri Lanka's port industry. So for me, I think China is a great balancer and a catalyst for Sri Lanka's relationship with India. Because of that, uh, well, I totally agree with Dr. Pradeep. We have to have that finesse in hedging. And that would be the pragmatic approach for Sri Lanka's foreign policy in the future. Pradeep, that's an interesting description. Do you agree with that, that China is a catalyst for Sri Lanka's relationship with India? Well, in some ways, I think it is true that Sri Lanka's dealings with China and China's willingness to lend money for infrastructure development in in Sri Lanka, whether it is building ports or airports or highways, has made India much more active in its neighborhood. India has adopted a neighborhood-first policy now, which is much more about engaging much more comprehensively with India's neighborhood and being being a more generous benefactor in the neighborhood. But at the same time, I think we also have to remember that Sri Lanka's domestic politics is going to play a big part in Sri Lanka's ability to be able to hedge cleverly between India and China. Because if Sri Lanka is able to reach a reconciliation with its minorities, you know, we've seen a rise of Sinhala nationalism in Sri Lanka. And that has created a complexity in Sri Lankan domestic politics, which has created divisions in Sri Lankan politics. And if small island states, and Sri Lanka is not that small because Sri Lanka's population is the size of Australia, but compared to India. So 20, China, 24 million, I think. Yeah. 24 million. Hmm. Exactly. But compared to China and India, of course, it's a much smaller country. 
And for a country the size of Sri Lanka to be able to to have an active foreign policy, it would require a political consensus. And it would require Sri Lankan political parties to come together and agree on some common program for Sri Lanka, both in terms of economic development and in terms of foreign and security policy. Well, if we can agree on anything here, it is that there are many, many challenges ahead uh, for Sri Lanka, not just on the geopolitical front with its big players in the region, but also domestically. An enormous thank you to both of you. Thank you, Pradeep, and thank you, Chilani, for speaking with Ear to Asia. Thank you, Ali. Thank you, Ali. Our guests have been Dr. Pradeep Tunisia from the University of Melbourne and Dr. Chulani Atanayaka from the National University of Singapore. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify or Google Podcasts. If you like the show, please rate and review it. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And please help us by spreading the word on social media. This episode was recorded on the 24th of September 2022. Producers were Calvin Parham and Eric Van Bemmel of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2022, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.